Hello, this is Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. You just heard a noise coming from Matt Lorenz, a.k.a. the Suitcase Junket. He'll explain between a couple of songs he plays for us at the end of part two of this episode, whatever the awesome heck that was. But it is only one of the many sounds that come from this one-man band. Sounds from actual suitcases, to guitars found in the trash, to any number of odds and ends Matt procures, invents, and salvages. He is an inventive and talented guy. I took a trip out to Western Massachusetts to chat with Matt in his recently almost finished studio to talk about... Well, a whole bunch of things. His latest album, The End is New, his upcoming show at the Sinclair in Cambridge, Massachusetts on August 6th, his life before, during, and after COVID, and the difference between doom folk and swamp Yankee music, if there is one. I even had my friend Eric Lineback ask a few questions that were more intelligent than mine. Anyways, The End is New, produced by Steve Berlin of Los Lobos, is Matt's sixth full-length album as The Suitcase Junket, and his first for Renew Records of BMG. You should most definitely see Matt at the Sinclair on Friday, August 6th, along with the incredible Sarah Borges opening up, and also the talented Jocelyn McKenzie from Pearl and the Beard. This was part one of my conversation with the suitcase junket. Don't miss part two, as it only gets better. So, here is my conversation with Matt Lorenz of the suitcase junket, recorded in his studio in Western Massachusetts. All right, so let me just make sure this is high enough for it to register. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, ho, ho, ho. There you go. Yeah. What do you use? Pro Tools. You use Pro Tools? Yep. And, and you record up here? Yeah, yeah. I got the, I just have that Tascam interface there. I have the same exact Tascam. It's great. For my, when I, when I did, you know, Walter Sickert? Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys. Oh, I have heard that. There's like 27 of them in there in the band, so I had Whoa. to pull out, pull out the big boy. Yeah, so I, I got, I got I like the, this old uh, school thing too. That's nice. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm building this. Um, I've got a few like reverb things that I'm working on. One of them is I had to um, when we were doing work on the house in the basement, they took out a bunch of the ducting. Yeah. And I was, you know, I, what, am I, what am I gonna do? I'm not gonna take it to a scrapyard. I'm too lazy. I'm not gonna <laughs> just take it to the dump because you know I'm. I have a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I like used it on, on pile driver as like a reverb chamber. Yeah. And now it's like in the rafters of the barn and I'm rigging it up with all these different little so you're making speakers. Your own natural reverb. Yeah. Like I always loved the sound of, um, like growing up, we had forced air and like hearing music from down in the living room, up in my bedroom through the <laughs> through little that. thing. I yeah. was like always into that sound. Yeah. So I'm basically going to sort of simulate that. I actually came across a piece of, a really nice piece of brass recently. And I know that they usually use steel plates for that, but I was testing it out, just like, you know, tapping it with a key and like yeah, flicking it and stuff. Yeah, must be an interesting stuff. sound. I think it's going to be great. Really? It's a little smaller, you know, than some of those like big, like the plate that um, that that I will usually use on the record is the one that Jay Mascus has at his house uh-huh. because the engineer works with him a lot. So yeah. it's like, all right, we'll take this to Jay's and we'll throw a plate on it. And, you know, I think that's like a, a pretty big one, but I'm pretty excited about this. I've got a... a uh, like a fab- metal fabrication guy who's going to help me build the frame and you know get it. 
get it up and mounted and then so i want to do what you do i want I, I, just I, do it i have well, i have no <laughs> i have no ability i've undis- i should say this i have undiscovered ability how's mm-hmm. that is that better than that, saying that's pretty good yes yeah. a little kinder if you want to use that in the name of your next album, you, you, I'll get, you can have that one for free. Undiscovered ability. I just made that up too. That's pretty damn good. Just to be able to make your own shit and put it together and make music out of it. I freaking love that. I love that. It's so, it, yeah. especially in this day of electronic and all that kind of stuff. And I hate guitar pedals. Yeah. I, I don't know how to use them. I don't have the patience for them. Same. I, you know, I use them for, I have, I have my, I have a reverb pedal. Yep. I have my tuner and then there's like some, you know, looping stuff that I've used like 1% of the time. Yep. I'd much rather have something just naturally that, that was built out of, you know, wood and scraps and metal and all that kind of stuff. That's why I love those old tube amps. You know, like I'll occasionally get a pedal, yeah. but I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. Yeah. Like it's a slippery slope. I don't know that I would use it properly. I <laughs> actually, I know that I don't, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, right. And those tube amps, just like the overdrive on those are just, they're, they're, they're what I need. You know, someone recently was like, what do you got on the floor, man? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, your pedals, man. What do you got on the floor? I was like, oh no, like that set, there were no pedals. You There's know, no pe- you don't use reaper. pedals at all. So I have, I go through two amps. One's yeah. like a, a 20 watt. They're both old Gibson's. A 20 watt and a five watt with uh-huh. a tremolo. Yeah. And so the five watt is all the overdrive you could need. And it's got the tremolo on it. And I just recently after, I think it was after the Mean Dog album, because there was a bunch of different guitar sounds on that. Yeah. I picked up the, a reverb and I picked up an overdrive pedal. Oh, so yeah. when, sometimes when I need it to really, really rip, when, you know, because it's basically clean guitar and dirty guitar, yeah. you know, split. Um, but that's it, you know, and I like occasionally I'll be given some stuff like this random, whatever that is. <laughs> Someone <laughs> gave me that. I think it's a phaser, a phase, a phaser. It's a little too trippy for me. I'm, I, you know, I'm not even <laughs> sure what the hell they do. I, you know, they say phaser and they, you know, and compressing and I'm like, ah, I, I don't have the patience. Yeah. And you know, the few times I've plugged this in, I'm pretty sure it just goes. <laughs> at and look, you're doing speeds. your mouth perfectly fine. Right? <laughs> like, that's what just you have mouths mouth. for. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> Although now that you have Jay Maskus uh, playing on your album, I'm sure he uses those pedals. He, who even knows? I mean, I feel like he's got, yeah. Does he, is that the guitar on the candle? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That is so good. Isn't that a ripper? That's such a ripper. I mean, I, he could, I, I wish he could just play the, the longer. I know. On that. That's such, it's, the guitar sound in that sounds so great. It's insane. It fits the song so well. It's insane. He sent us like six takes. And so it was like. Like, I don't know which one to use. Uh, okay. Um, I will listen to all of these multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, when you go on tour, when you when you hit Sinclair, are you, is, is, you going to be by yourself? Are you going to be with a band? What is, what's the deal? I'm going to bring some people. Um, well, you know, Jay? I'm going to do, I wish Jay. No, no that's <laughs> Jay's not going to make it. That's too bad. You know, I'm going to have, I'll have some people sitting in. Um, they've got a pretty busy schedule, I think. Um, well, di- good. Dino. Um, I'm glad so, to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when I lived in Amherst, we lived right around the corner from him. Oh, really? A couple of times I brought his bulldog back from the coffee shop because he would occasionally leave it up there tied up by accident. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I think they bought a piece of art for me once upon a time. Is that Lynn? Oh, hi. Oh, hey, Chris. How are you? <laughs> oh, thanks Nice to so see much. you. And who's this? Your little one? Yeah, this is Ezio. Ezio. Yeah. What are you doing? Hey, Ez. What's happening, man? Your first, first and only? Or? Yeah. We're living out here, huh? 
<laughs> a lot of people out here in, in Leverett. You're not used to this many people out here. What do you think? What? He does a lot of percussion work. Yeah. Uh, how old is he? Uh, ten months. Ten months. Wow. My gosh, really? Only ten months? He's a big boy. I don't remember. My, I mean, I have two girls, and he's a little girl. But I forget what size they are supposed to be. He he also pulled a little bit of like a Benjamin Button thing. Like when he was born, he <laughs> he really looked like an old Italian fisherman, which is partially why he has his name. Well, I'm glad he's grown out of that. Yeah. Into an, into yeah. No, when he's gonna when he's gonna get the Rolly Fingers mustache? Which I'm I'm a little disappointed you don't have that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. But are we gonna get a mustache? He doesn't speak English yet. Is he speaking? Is it too early to speak? He babbles. I don't know when they speak. When do they start? I don't even know. I don't know anymore. Is he driving it? I don't even, I don't know. We've got him behind the wheel a few times. What do you think, man? <laughs> well, of a parked car, you know. All right. All right thanks. Nice to see you. <laughs> thanks, Chris. All right. So we've got, we're kind of all over the place right now. But yeah, yeah. What I... What I would like to do, just so people who haven't heard of you or don't know you or just haven't read your bio, which is a very nice bio. It's very oh, nice, nicely written. Good. I like I like the the uh, imagery there and all that kind of stuff. Use big words that I don't understand, but it's good. It's all good. <laughs> we paid a lot of money for those words. It's, well, you know, those, <laughs> those are, are expensive words. Those are you know, there's a twenty dollars service fee for those words from what <laughs> yeah. I from what I hear. Can just tell me about your your upbringing, just you know, in a, in a nutshell. Give me the give me the ten cent tour. Uh, yeah, grew up in rural Vermont. Yeah. Started playing piano because I needed to copy my sister. She was, you know, taking piano lessons. An older and, sister? Was that? An older sister? Yeah, yeah, a couple years older. All right. Who you had a band with later on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, right. you know, I I, th- I would say most of my musical career I probably owe to copying her. Oh, you know, that's she nice. Was, she was sort of a natural singer, and I wasn't. I mean, I could carry a tune, but yeah. you wouldn't want to hear it. You know, it took me a while <laughs> to, like, be beat the hell out of my voice enough to make it interesting to listen to. Well, what age opinion. are you talking about there, though? Teenage years, uh, early well, 20s. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're hitting you puberty. Know. Yeah, exactly. I'm still going through puberty at 53. So I'm like, waiting for a second puberty. I, yeah, I've heard this, that. There's a second puberty? I think so, yeah. I freaking love that. Yeah, voice That's gets great. lower or higher the next time, I think. Because you know, I would love to go through puberty again, <laughs> obviously. But uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, and then just started playing a bunch of different instruments. Was like sort of always interested, you know, violin, saxophone. And you went to Amherst College? Uh, Hampshire College. Hampshire College. Yeah, right. which sorry. is sort of the weird, you know, uh, kid amongst the five colleges in this area. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Self-designed majors, um, you know, no grades, that kind of thing. You, yeah, so wait a minute. So just to, just to stop you there. So you were, you studied music and adaptive instrument design. Yeah. Was that a self-created major? Yeah. So it sort of started from the first year I was there. They sort of split you up into the, you sort of do a bunch of projects your first year and then second, third year, you kind of expand and learn as much as you can and then do a really concentrated project at the end. And the first year I was there, I was taking a class about adaptive design or maybe it was just design in general, but the place that there's a place on campus that focuses on adaptive design. And this guy came in to the class, his name was Richie Lepore and he was um, a studio drummer in LA back in the day. He drummed with everybody, Bette Midler. And I mean, he went on tour to uh, the name sounds familiar. Elvis, the ice capades. He was just like all over the place. He, you know, and he sort of retired from life. I like, I like the sequence there. Elvis, ice capades. (laughs) just the gamut of things, you know, like where, you know, probably on Sesame Street, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and then he sort of re- not retired, but he you know retired from touring and studio work and was teaching at Hart uh, in Hartford, the okay. school of music there at the university. Um, and he tragic story, got pneumonia, got bed sores, got his leg amputated, and just wanted to be able to like play some drums. You know, it was his right leg. He had like you know maybe eight inches of stump left. Mm. Um, and so he came into the class and was like, "Hey, can you guys come up with a thing for me?" And so me and one other guy got really into it and built him like basically a stool that had a pulley system, you know, so that he could. It was ba- it was a pretty simple concept, but yeah. it, it made it so that he could still use his what was left of his leg to yeah. to play the drums, and yeah. he was you know giving lessons and that sort of thing. And that kind of spurred me into thinking about just using pretty basic technology, basic, you know, pulleys and bike cables and stuff. Like what if you couldn't use either of your legs, you know, at all? And so, you know, I, I designed, it only went through a prototype stage basically, but I designed something that was basically using, um, elbow movements to trigger hi-hat and drum. So you would, you'd have to drum with pretty classical style, you know, in, in the classical drumming style, from what I, I learned, you don't really use, uh, your upper arms you know it's all sort of forearm work yeah and so conceptually you could either shrug or pop your elbows out to trigger those interesting all right um and then you know part of the project was also like running the feasibility numbers and they didn't really pan out so i didn't didn't start a business around it or anything but and then the music element of it was was pretty out mostly saxophone based stuff some songwriting and guitar stuff as well but like very experimental composition sort of things. But music was your thing. Yeah, it was always, you know, I remember when I was there wondering. You took a picture of my foot? I mean, it's an awesome looking foot. I, but, I just did. All right, I just want to I talk about that. I talk about, there's no rules here, man. How many times I have to tell you that? I can say, I can talk, we can talk about it, whatever you want. But music always kind of came naturally. And so at a certain point, I remember just thinking, like, focus on that. Yeah. You know, because I had a, a few different interests, uh, but that was, you know, that was the thing that really uh, kind of moved me. And so I wound up focusing on it. And then you had a band with your sister. Yeah, I bummed around for a couple of years with a buddy of mine. We graduated together, went over to, you know, got one way tickets for like 150 bucks to England and busked in the streets oh, really? for like a year and a half. Ran out of money in Barcelona and, you know. As one does. It was a great place to run out of money because it was warm enough in winter that you could still busk and there's a big tourist scene and that's where you know that's who's throwing their money away on you so well i mean that's i i love the busking story because you're you're in the trenches there because you have to just deal with whatever you're dealing with yeah and then i would imagine you that's i mean tell me did did you start using stuff you would find around the streets as music Musical instruments and yeah, that's what did that where is that where it started right? that, through busking. I, that I think is is probably where it started. It's also where I learned how to sing loud, you know, because you uh-huh. had to. You're competing with street traffic right. and that sort it's, of thing, and you're just trying to like get just... yeah, you're just trying to get people close to you. So yeah, a lot of that early percussion stuff, you know, we didn't have the resources over there to really build much of anything. And yeah. so once I got home was when I started really being like, okay, so if I mount these on drum pedals or if I, you know, like put together a little workshop and I started building all of these one string can fiddles that I was using on early albums, mainly because I wanted, I wanted a cello. I was like, I, I want a cello, but who can afford a freaking cello? You know? <laughs> so I found, you know, I would go to the dump and get these big 
metal, like five gallon metal cans and then slam a, yeah, like a broomstick through the side and use the bottom as the resonating head, you know, so, <laughs> and, uh, that did the trick for a while. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, then, you know, it's, it's making noise and that's, yep. and it doesn't sound like a cello necessarily, but it sounds something like something cool. Right. And that it. was a lot of that rusty bell group that my sister right, was, rusty in bell, was yeah. where a lot of that, those instruments kind of got their their start that was a really experimental kind of freak folk outfit for a while we were touring with a bucket of glass and like a plunger and it was this like just smashing like a really low it's like a bass drum hit with like an unpredictable decay of yeah. breaking glass <laughs> that's so awesome do you have recordings of that and like is that yeah i think it must have made it on that on that first record oh, i don't know wow. you know we we stopped touring with it at a for safety concerns. You, know? <laughs> like, you just got to get in glass dust in your eye and bleeding. Yeah. You're like, why am I bleeding? Yeah, totally. What, what happened? But uh, so after that, so was it you? You started playing out on your own after that. Yeah, well, sort of overlapped with with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I found this junky old guitar. Um, pulled it out of a dumpster at Hampshire College, actually, you know, because every, every year in the spring, everyone would throw a bunch of good stuff away. Yeah. If you needed a fan or a stereo. It's like or, Austin Christmas. You ever heard of Austin Christmas? No, but it's the same. We call it Hippie Christmas. Yeah. yeah. It's when you know, and the college kids get there and they throw out all the shit that they can't take home with them, whatever. They just put it out there and it's called Austin Christmas when you go there. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, anything you need. So this was, you know, this guitar was filled with mold. Is it is you know I clean the mold out and you I still have it rigs it up it's in the van but yeah it's, still, it's still the one I play fantastic I've, I've apparently am a sentimental person you know I keep thinking I'm gonna get past it it sounds good it sounds good it sounds unlike anything else you what know? kind of guitar is it it's it took me a while to figure it out because the only sticker that was left on it was a made in Japan mark and it had the residue of a small oval like of sticker at the um, on the headstock. Yeah. And it was only maybe five years ago that I was at a venue and a guy was like, I know that guitar. And he <laughs> went and in the back and he pulled a busted one out and it was Kingston was the brand, which oh. is Tysco, who made all the guitars when Silvertone shipped production overseas, basically. So they oh, made okay. all the Ks and Silvertones after the Second World War, basically. Oh, interesting. But it's a crappy toy, basically. You yeah. don't see too many of them. It's a plywood box, but... It's tuned down to open C, and it just rips. It sounds it sounds huge, but it, the intonation's awful. It's hard to play in tune. It's hard to keep it in tune. Yeah. You know, I've I've replaced the the tuner heads on it like so many times. Really, um, it's it's a, a little crazy, and I've started branching out a little bit. I've got yeah. an electric that I bring with me as a backup yeah. and that sort of thing. I'm very I'm very except for my electrics. I'm not I'm not really uh, attached to my electrics. Um, mm. As a matter of fact, I've sold almost all my electrics to get an acoustic. Oh, yeah. But I still have my very first Yamaha acoustic. is an F, F151, I think it was called. Yamaha made really good acoustics for a while. They, Maybe they were, still do. It was a know. Japanese, you know, one, and it was like 1976 I got it. Mm -hmm. But apparently it was a really popular guitar at the yeah. time. A lot of people just have it as like a playing guitar, and now it's... Yeah, it's hard to keep them tuned. It doesn't sound that great. But yeah. I'm not getting I'm not gonna get rid of that thing. You can't. Yeah. And that one I mean It's hard to learn how to play a guitar is that, that Yeah. Thing. This one actually the, the Yamaha you just mentioned to was given to me by someone on the road who was like, dude, this isn't a great guitar, but it's a lot better than what you're playing. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I keep it around around the house, but it definitely, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make it on the road. I wish people would give me guitars. Eric, why haven't you ever given me a guitar? <laughs> I've never had 
had a guitar. Oh, okay. Well, when you get one, make sure you give it to, make sure you give it to me. I actually, I was at a gig once. I was at a gig once when this guy came by and he was touring and he had to go to the airport and he couldn't, for whatever reason, he couldn't bring it home. So he just came in. It was a crappy guitar, but I mean, I don't know, I'm not too crappy. It's a $100 guitar. And he's like, who wants this? And he gave it to this kid. Which was so freaking great. That's awesome. But, you know, I, didn't, I feel bad that he had to give the guitar away, but at least he gave it to away to a good home. I hope he did anyway. Yeah. So. And um, there's something about it. I don't know. There's something about a cheap guitar. I, You know, I'm not great with my stuff. Yeah. In terms of taking care of it and maintenance and that sort of thing. So part of me feels like I shouldn't have a nice things. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, the way I treat my objects, you yeah. know, it's like ride hard, put up wet kind of thing, you know? Well, they all may be nice guitars at one point and then someone beat the shit out of them and now, right. now they become, so, you know, maybe yeah. you should just buy a nice guitar and just beat the crap out of it. And then, that, that may need to happen. Actually, I've got a buddy of mine building one right now. Someone gave me a piece of rosewood. She found it under the Brooklyn Bridge back in the 60s when she lived in Brooklyn. Wow. There was a dump there. Someone had thrown away these like big planks of rosewood. So she gave me this piece of rosewood. She was wow. like, make a bench out of it or something. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. And I was like, well, rosewood is one of these things. When I was taking it out of her barn, it, I knocked it against the side of the barn and the whole thing was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. You know, it was like seven feet long. And so I take it to the, this guitar making friend of mine and he like, he scratches it with a piece of sandpaper and smells it and gets this little gleam in his eye. And, you know, it's Brazilian, which is, you know, you're not even really supposed to have. Yeah, you know, it's probably an endangered it's, it's thing. the and, same as ivory, basically. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, because it's where it came from, I mean, you know, old, you, you, would, you wouldn't travel overseas with it. They could take it. But yeah, he's right. building a guitar, an acoustic for me right now. Wow. So. Soon enough, I'll have a really nice guitar to beat the hell out oh, of. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it was found underneath the Brooklyn Bridge in 1961, so you can beat the crap out of it. Right? Yeah, okay. it's got a good story. I think the top is going to be like some old, you know, some other salvaged wood that he's I, got. I, so. I, love, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. So, okay. So, the beginnings of Suitcase. Junkie. Oh, right. Yeah. So, that guitar, I started pulling different songs out of it than I could use with Rusty Bell, and I started... Started the foot drumming thing in Rusty Bell because our drummer wanted to play more guitar, so we were splitting up drumming things. So I was sitting on a box doing just like a boom chick thing with my heels, and then I was like, well, what if I start, you know, building these different pedal triggered drums that emulate, you know, snare sounds or that sort of thing? Um, and so I started building that stuff to fit inside of a suitcase so that I could pretty easily busk, you know, and. And that was the main reason so that you started kind of figuring out how to play these instruments yourself and so you could busk by yourself and play the the bar gigs that paid you like 300 bucks so for you three got all hours. the whole 300 and then yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. we'd go out as a three piece you know and that's not a big band and we'd get back from tour and be like well that's not rent no and so i was like i can do that i can be loud and you know i can like write songs that are compelling enough that you know they're not going to boo me off the stage yeah that i can go out and do a tour and then that sort of turned into my steady job yeah yeah and then it wound up getting a little bit more momentum than the band um you know probably partially because of the novelty of it but and then i you know was sort of going back and forth record an album with rusty bell take it on the road for a little bit do an album with the suitcase junket take it on the road for a bit until everyone in the band was like, we want to do solo stuff, you know? Yeah. So we, we never really canceled the band. We, you know, just sort of 
didn't make another record. So, you know, we left that door open in case we want to cruise through it again. Maybe we can like do a, a combination reunion farewell. <laughs> well, you know, I've always wanted to get Tequila and the Worms back together for a farewell tour. That was our high school band. Yeah. And no one would come, but I could do still do a farewell tour. That's a, great, that? that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. My high school band was Red Flannel Hash. Red Flannel Hash. Yeah. So we're in Leverett. Yep. They have, this whole area is just full of artists. I mean, yep. I've talked to yep. Lisa Bastoni. I've talked to, um, oh God, I'm going to have to think about these things. And quick, we got Jeffrey Focault and Chris Delmers. I've, I've talked to Chris Delmers. I haven't yeah. talked to Jeffrey yet, but he's on my list. Yep. Um, anyways, uh, there's so many people all the way out here who want to have, who want to live a nice life and not have to pay prices that are in the, that are in the city. Yeah. Well, you know what? I don't want to steal your thunder, Eric. You had this, this was your question. Talk, when, do you want to, talk, want to ask you a question that you had? Do you remember what well, it was? Yeah, I mean, having lived in the area for, for years now and being a big fan of the river, 93.9, mm -hmm. the radio station, the Green River Fest, how, how much has this sort of community contributed to your success, your, you know, your vision? I mean, I think in a pretty big way. I mean, first off, I think landscape has a lot to do with what you become and what you make, you know, so like living out in the woods, living, you know, but still near enough to a lot of people doing interesting things makes a big difference. But then, you know, the, the local scene around here, I'm sure it goes through, you know, peaks and valleys, but like super supportive, you know, so when you're first starting off and taking your music out, the people are, are there, they're like, they're pumped to listen um, and getting those chances early on to, to play Green River Fest and, you know, the fact that the river would play the tunes pretty early on was, was a big deal. It's a good place to call home and it's, it's definitely the, the people here are, they're my people, you know, like I grew up in, in Southern Vermont and at some point I realized, you know, after traveling a bunch that I, you know, the landscape around here was really important and it's, you know, the, the smell of the forest apparently is something that's very important for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What do they call it? Forest bathing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was like in the news a bunch this past year. That was right. like uh, the because Japanese are yeah, like because of COVID into this. Like you do an hour in the woods and it's like it's, all the stress just kind of sloughs off. Yeah. 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 I, I, I buy it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, there's a few things. COVID sucked, right? Yeah. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But... There's a few things I hope that comes out of it. One of them is that it's forcing people to find other places to play where they live rather mm -hmm. than traveling into Boston. Yeah. So I'm hoping that is something that becomes a thing. There's more venues out in the burbs so that people have more opportunities to see music. They don't have to, all, even just the listeners don't have to travel all the way into Boston to hear an awesome band. They can just go down and, and hear you. Yeah, uh, somewhere local. I I grew up, you know, like pretty rural Vermont, and we were lucky enough to have uh, a group that would that promoted and brought in shows to the local auditorium, you know, the at the high school. That you know made a big impact on me. Just the idea that th those acts would come to my town, you yeah. know, and it, some of my favorite shows to play are those shows that are in towns you never heard of. These sort of you know maybe underserved communities artistically. Yeah. Partially because people are so hungry for it, you know. There's, you know, New York City is an amazing city, but everyone there has seen everything, or at least they think they have. <laughs> you know, so yeah. convincing yeah. people in New York City to come out to a show can be like really difficult. Sure. You know, so it's like plus they have so many options. Right, you could do a million things on any given night. Yeah, and something I've noticed a lot too is like 
certainly the people who have been, are used to going to shows, they were so jonesing and, and missed shows so much. But the people who hadn't been to shows in years are now thinking, why the hell I haven't been going to shows? This right. was amazing. <laughs> right. They haven't been to a show in 20 years or something or, if, yeah. if not, not, or, not, or longer. And it's because they just weren't offered the opportunity necessarily. It's like, I can't yeah. go. I've got kids. I can't go into the city. I can't afford a babysitter or whatever it is. So they can now take their kids to a place and, and, and listen to music. And so I, I'm hoping that that is a, a trend. Yeah. And these, these backyard shows or, you know, living room shows are, are really cool not only because they're they're intimate and you feel like you know you're a part of something but for the performer you're walking into usually a group of people who kind of already know and like each other Mm -hmm. and it kind of makes your job easier because everyone's already comfortable you don't have to set anyone at ease you can kind of jump right into like deeper material or something you know because you don't have to like win them over they're there you know i I do those sort of small shows usually they're sort of like you know midweek when i'm doing a big tour or something like that you sort of of fill in the the gaps between the weekends with these kind of house concert type things and and i love it because you you get these these communities of people who like you said haven't been to shows in a long time their town maybe was one of those towns that like they only have tribute acts in the in the in the two bars in town or whatever yeah. it is and you yeah, know cover so. there's cover bands exactly which is, which is fine it's fine but, yeah but you know it's to hear original music unusual and novel and it's an amazing thing for them to see and you know, a lot of people didn't, they don't they don't know they didn't know they were going to like it you know there's yeah. like one person in town who's like we're going to do this you guys are going to do it trust me and, you know, it's, yeah, it's cool. So when COVID was about to hit, you had just started putting together your latest, your newest album, which is called The End Is New. Pretty much, yeah. Like all the writing that happened for that album happened sort of spring and summer of 2019, 2019 yeah, I yeah. guess it would be. Yeah. When Mean Dog Trampoline came out, I, I wrote... Steve Berlin, the producer, I was like, hey, when do we start the new, like, new album's out. When do we start the next one? You know, kind of as a joke. And he was like, tomorrow? <laughs> I was like, okay. More than more so than the first time I sent, I was sending him a lot of like half-baked ideas, you know, just being like, well, let's see, you know. And he, it was it was good because he wound up cherry-picking some of these things where, where it was like, the first half of that thing, you should make a whole song out of, you know. Um, and so the process was pretty interesting on this one. And so we sort of workshopped all that stuff through the fall, you know, mainly just I'd send him voice memos and, you know, whatever kind of uh, stuff from the phone that I could do from the road. And our first studio session was in February of 2020. So it there was in a, the news. There were hints of it yep. coming. It was yeah. like it was it was already pretty, pretty dire in China at that yeah. point. And then, you know, we did all of our basic tracks with Justin at Sullen Lab in East Hampton again. And then the second round of dates was early March. So he had already been sequestered on the West Coast because that Seattle, you know, was having hit its thing happen. And so they shut down the whole West Coast. He couldn't make it, so we were doing everything remotely for all the overdubs. And then the lockdown orders came from Massachusetts halfway through that session, and, and the, the engineer and I were just like, well, it's just the two of us in here. I guess we'll just uh, finish up and uh, cross our fingers if one of us has it we both got it so in, in here you mean in here no or over in um east hampton in east hampton yeah he's um, got a proper studio oh, okay that, you know 
right. And yeah, he's the guy who works with Dinosaur Jr. Okay. and you know, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and that whole crew. And What's the Frank name of the Black. studio? Sewn Lab. Yeah, and Frank Black from the Pixies it yeah. lent us a bunch of his amps for oh, the nice. past two projects, which is awesome. So if one of yeah if on, on any of those songs you're like that kind of sounds like the Pixies yeah, <laughs> it is it's the amp it's, <laughs> it's the, the amp, amp. <laughs> yeah so that was you know it made it, it it made the process pretty slow you know because he was listening in through some you know audio movers I think was the was the app we were using so he could sort of have ears on the session but. It was crashing all the time. We were having a, re- a really tough time. Of he it. was listening online while you were playing. So yeah, he was listening as so then it was like text messages time. or phone calls, or he'd be like, you know, and the communication was it was rough yeah. for the first few days. And yeah. eventually, we found a rhythm. But that makes me think. I mean, what you know, the pandemic has sort of brought to light this idea of live streaming and and virtual interaction. You know, how do you see? Where do you see that going? Like, how do you see that playing a role and sort of live music i think now that people have done it and gotten a little bit used to it it'll keep happening i think it's weirder for the performer because you get to the end of the song and then you sort of just like wait and then maybe you lean towards your screen and be like oh people are reacting and you know, maybe you like res- respond a little bit to the thing i had a really hard time with it personally mainly technical issues yeah <laughs> i like, couldn't pull it off um but f- Talking to people now that I've started playing shows again, it meant a lot to people, you know, to be able to access a little bit of that, you know, exchange of energy, even, even, you know, over the internet. And so it's a great revenue stream for artists, you know, like for a lot of artists who, who are really into sharing their music, those that let their fans record their music, like the Grateful Dead, I guess, back in the day, like started that whole thing. And the idea is to get fans to come out live and experience the live music and and so to the extent you can't do that the next best thing is is the streaming experience and so i think as technology advances and you can interact as an artist with your with your audience and i know fans.com um is starting to do this type of thing where the artist has video screens and can see their fans from home oh that's interesting you know so so you it's sort of like the tv shows lately where the live audience isn't there, but they've got a bunch of video screens. Yeah. So, but it, it you know, and that's suboptimal, but but still, it, like you said, at least you can see a reaction. You can you can get a feel for how your your audience is reacting to what you're doing and, and, and give you feedback. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cafe Lena, that there's a little, it's like a little folk club. Yeah, up I know in, Cafe Lena. Up in Saratoga Springs. I've heard they, of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool spot. I was one of my it was one of my first shows after this. You know, once I started doing them again. They were actually doing that live stream thing for a while. You know, Cafe Lena would be like, you know, well, here's here's your door take, and here's what you made from the internet. Yeah, and it was this cool sort of like, wow, what a, a neat little, little bonus. A little it was extra. like, you know, some random person in Australia was like yeah. enjoying the show. Exactly, <laughs> two in the morning. I think it's fantastic. So, excellent question, Eric. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so you're doing the online commentary with the producer and, and oh, during to get, the session during yeah, the sessions yeah. you're trying to get this done now you said that it, it took a little longer but was everything it, was slower or yeah. slower rather yeah did you like that it was okay we yeah. got used to it yeah like no i didn't like it you didn't like it no it was tedious every sort of no try it again 
or whatever took an extra, you know, right. 45 seconds, which, you know, when you're paying for studio time, you're just like TikTok. True, man. true. That's right. We only have 10 days. Let's do this. That's right. Yeah, you know, um, I, I can get that, especially if it's costing you money that way. Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, and that wasn't what was on my mind. I don't, at the time, it was, uh, you're I just trying blame to get, if it was. you're trying to get the songs right and yeah. you're, you're pretty thick into like getting the right sounds. For all I know, we wound up with a better record for it. I have no idea, you know, like I, it's, I really love the record and, I love I, the record you know, too. like it sounds great. It it may have not come out that way if Steve had been in the room for that whole second yeah, you never half know. of the session, you know, it's like, thing, you know, the vibe would have been different. So you never, yeah, exactly. You never know if, if, if you were not sequestered in a room with one guy, would it be the same record? Right. You called this a doom folk record. Yeah. Uh, explain that. Well, you know, I was... When you're starting off, people are always asking you what your genre is. Yeah, I know. What it's your, the worst question ever. And it's, I, it's really I have hard. to ask it once in a while or like, what do you sound like? And it's the worst question. But. It's hard because you, you, know, you don't want to reference yourself to other people, even though we all know that we're stealing from each other sure. and we're, you know, we're, we're drinking from the same you know, well. Yeah. And so for a while... I was calling my music Swamp Yankee music, you know, it was Swamp like Yankee swamp music. Swamp Yankee, yeah. And that was from a guy who asked me if I was a Swamp Yankee after a show. There's a song that involves uh, a family eating a muskrat. Um, it, was, it wasn't like a big part of the song. And I was, I was, so I wasn't kind of impressed that he even noticed that it happened. You know, it's just yeah. like a small thing that happens in yeah. the first verse. And yeah. he's like, hey, so you get, that song where you guys ate a muskrat. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, are you a swamp Yankee? Because I know swamp Yankees definitely, we, we eat muskrats. And I was like, I have no idea what a swamp Yankee is, but I want to be one. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like a country-fied Yankee, basically. It's a term that comes from like the, uh, I think the American Revolution even. It's like an old term. Huh. Anyway, I, you know, sort of co-opted that and was like, yeah, make it Swamp Yankee music. Um, and then it felt like I wasn't anymore. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about just sort of brainstorming what I want this album to feel like. And, I, you know, the world was feeling pretty doomy. You know, it was like the wildfires in Australia, just all of the climate change stuff, you know, the orange smear that was running this place. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I was feeling doomy in the summer of 2019 is like you and everybody quaint else. now. I know. You know? It's like, I know. Like we had no idea it was coming. Yeah. Um, and then this idea of folk music, like I definitely play folk music, even though I play like loud rock and roll. Yeah. It's folk music, you yeah. know? And so some, you know, I, I do sort of, I often try to open, widen the tent of the folk music scene a little bit, you know? A lot of people are, are fine with it, but there are some sort of folk Nazis you'll come across at, at certain places where they'll, you know, like they see an amplifier and they're just like, it's not folk music. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. doom folk, when I put those two words together, I was like, this is cool. I don't know what this is. And I, I went to Steve and I was like, Hey, let's, let, let's make this a doom folk record. He's like, what the, what the fuck is doom folk? Yeah. I was like, I don't know, man, but I think we can, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think we can get it. That's we'll get whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. That's what this is going to be. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, I don't feel that it's like, it's not a dark record. No, really. The the content of the lyrics is a little bit, maybe, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but it's it's the first album where I sort of try to talk about what's going on in the world, yeah. you know, as opposed to just love songs and existential crises <laughs> and the blues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's not without hope, you know, and that's sort that's of like... That's exactly what I was going to say. It's It seems... I, I hear the 
the angst and in the in the in the lyrics mm-hmm. and even in like how you sing it or how you play it but i still feel like the, it's hopeful it's yeah. still hopeful and that's the title of the album too right the end is new it's like this is one door closes on the open yeah, the end yeah. is a new beginning kind of thing exactly yeah, it's yeah. like you know the rebirth kind of idea this was part one of my conversation with the suitcase junket don't miss part two as it only gets better but i will say my usual closing just in case i would like to thank matt for inviting us into his home and for the conversation as well as lynn bertrand and georgia teensma for helping set this up you can listen and purchase his music watch all the cool videos and find out where he's playing next which is the sinclair on august 6th at the suitcasejunket.com go to abovethebasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter listen and subscribe to our podcast like our facebook page follow us on twitter and look at all the nice pictures we post on instagram we are everywhere from all of us at above the basement thank you for listening tell your friends and remember boston music like its history is unique part two up next